A big thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring this episode of iFreaks to promote the App Center, a continuous integration delivery and feedback suite of cloud services for Swift and Objective-C apps. With App Center, you can automate your iOS and macOS development lifecycle, build, test, distribute, monitor, and push to ship five-star, high-quality apps faster and with confidence. Building a development pipeline in your iOS apps has always been a challenge, but with App Center, you can get started in minutes. Simply connect your GitHub and Bitbucket repos and build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. As a fully modular suite of services, you can pick and choose the service you need and connect it to the tools you already use. Sign up now on appcenter.ms and spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. Hi, welcome to iFreaks 241. Today we have just me, Guirambo from Brazil, and my friend Erica. Bom dia from uh, Denver. Bom dia. <laughs> okay, Erica. So today we're talking backups. You suggested this topic because you're apparently a big backup nerd. So why don't you tell us why are you so worried about backups? I wouldn't describe myself as a big backup nerd, more like a paranoid backup nerd. <laughs> <laughs> But when you think about what you have in terms of your life on your computer, not everything can be synced to GitHub. And there's quite a lot of things that shouldn't be synced to GitHub, whether it's your family photographs, personal records, If you're a writer, all your manuscripts, your daily work, your email, these are all extremely critical things. And while some of them naturally live off-site, such as at least some of your email, quite a lot of it lives on your computer. And were you to lose that, it would be a catastrophe. People say that when they lose their photographs, of their kids growing up, that it's traumatic. You can say things professionally. There is a monetary cost to losing your working system, not just your notes, your, your files, and so forth, but your entire setup. I know a horror story about not backing up a photographer uh, back uh, on the city I was born in. She did like wedding photography and she just arrived at her studio from a photo shoot and she downloaded the photos to her computer and left. And then during the weekend, there was like huge rain and it rained into her computer and she lost all the pictures she took that night. So she lost wedding pictures from a client and she got sued and she basically is not a photographer anymore. I think people see it as a personal catastrophe that they are losing part of their life when those memories are taken away from them. Yeah, and since she wasn't doing backups, she basically lost her practice. She, she's not a photographer anymore because no one else would trust her with their photos after this thing happened. If you think about where your data lives, so much of it is local to your office or to your laptop. If your laptop is stolen, if your office is in a hurricane or if there's a volcano that you know melts your life, Unless you have rigorously thought about all your backup scenarios and categorized your data, you are vulnerable to really bad situations. Not everybody's going to lose their job, but there is a personal and emotional and financial cost to your data. And this is stuff that you have probably built up for years. I think it's worth mentioning that some things that people think of as backups are not really backups. I am thinking of something like Dropbox or iCloud. 
my pictures that I take with my iPhone, they are all on my iCloud account, but that's not a backup. That's a cloud storage thing. If I delete a picture from my iCloud account, it's gone forever. And if I don't know if something happens to my iCloud account and the pictures are deleted, uh, I can't recover them because I don't have a backup. I have just, uh, I, they are on the cloud, but they can be lost. So uh, many people think of stuff like Dropbox and, and iCloud as backups, but they are not actually backups. Dropbox is one component of the backup solution, as is iCloud. And Dropbox does hold on to deleted files for a certain amount of time. And anything that's off-site, whether you share to a business computer, as well as your home computer, or you share to a cloud storage solution, or you use one of the backup services, they all involve a mix of physicality and cloud components, both local storage and remote storage. And you have to have a mix of these. I would not recommend going with a single backup solution. I always say mix and match, choose what's important, assign priorities, and then introduce redundancy. Yeah, I've heard many stories of people losing their only backup or they lose their data and when they go to use their backup, they notice that the backup is not working or it's lost. And if you have like just a hard drive on your house with your backups, if something happens like a flood or a volcano, a hurricane, a robbery, you're probably going to lose your backup as well. And of course, we're not talking theoretically about volcanoes. Right now in Hawaii, there are volcanoes melting houses. So this is, you know, very current. I'm in a very privileged position when it comes to natural disasters because Brazil is notoriously lacking anything like that. We don't have volcanoes. Unlike Costa Rica. Yeah, we don't have any of that terrible stuff you have a lot in the U.S., But anyway, you, you can get your house uh, invaded and stolen. And so you have to worry about that no matter what. So how about we break down the different components of backup solutions? Yeah, now that people are scared and they're going to have nightmares <laughs> about losing their data, let's, let's talk practical. How, how do you solve that issue? Well, since our audience is mostly coders, let's start with the simplest. Um, Offsite GitHub. You want your code to persist, even if something horrible happens to you? You have a local repo, you have a, a GitHub repo, and you push. Many companies store um, their own repos in offsite solutions as well. I mean, Git is not limited to GitHub, obviously. Yeah, the replication aspect of Git is very nice. Uh, for my company, we use our self-hosted GitLab solution, which is in the cloud. And we have several copies of the code in various places. And a thing that I think uh, some developers don't think about is even if you're working on some side projects on your free time, Just create a Git repo and push it somewhere. It doesn't have to be GitHub. It can be another computer. It can be a server you host yourself on Linode or something. Um, but just push the code somewhere because you might lose your stuff. Uh, you might do something dumb and want to go back. So having a Git repo, even if it's just a simple personal project is definitely worth it. I don't, I don't code without a, a Git repo, basically. Everything starts with a Git repo already built in, and I commit every now and then and push. And of course, when you're talking any sort of off-site storage, you have to think about privacy. Of and 
starting at $7 a month, you can purchase a GitHub membership. It goes up from there, but seven is their small plan. And that's, you know, for individuals, you know, writers, people who don't do a lot of massive projects with major use on the infrastructure there. But you get an unlimited number of secret repos, private ones that you can do private projects. You can share those around with people. So if you're working with one group at the same time as another, these repos will not be mutually visible to members of your different groups, which allows you to do consulting. It allows you to do a lot of things on a very well-considered platform that has good infrastructure, good security. I would be shocked if, you know, things that were stored to GitHub, if, if and when GitHub goes out of business, I believe there will be a long downtime that will allow you to transfer your data off the system. Yeah, and... I'm sure they have redundant backups of everything. And just a tip for our listeners, if you want private Git repos hosted and you can't pay for GitHub, Bitbucket offers that functionality for free. So if, if you can't afford the $7 a month, you can start with Bitbucket. I used it for a long time before I joined the GitHub membership Because GitHub, you can store public repos for free and they charge for private repos. And I think Bitbucket is the kind of the opposite. Can you talk a little bit more about what Bitbucket is and their business model? I honestly, I'm not very familiar with their business model, but they are basically a service very, very similar to GitHub. They are a Git platform on the cloud that you can use to create repos and you have your readme and your issues and everything. So it's basically a different implementation of what GitHub is. So in terms of coding, I don't think you really can beat GitHub. It's free. It is easy. It is so reliable. The people that work there are very responsive. I've been really happy with working with GitHub, but it's really nice as well to know that there are other places to go. And I remember a few years ago, a lot of people used SourceForge, which was primarily driven by Subversion. And that seems to have kind of decayed. And when now when I see something hosted on Subversion, I sort of get the feeling that it's old and probably not well-maintained. Yeah, I remember SourceForge. Um, it, when you wanted to download some open source app from, for macOS, uh, it was very often the place you got the code from. And I have the same impression as you that when I go to get something from there, it's probably some old piece of code that's not maintained anymore. In terms of cloud solutions, there's obviously iCloud. And Apple has pushed it. But Apple's iCloud is so integrated with its platforms that it doesn't do the same thing that you would get out of Amazon. Amazon has its Amazon Web Services, which includes uh, actually an array of cloud storage solutions. But you generally have to roll your own or purchase a product that works with um, Amazon. For example, there is storage, I believe it's called Glacier, which per gigabyte is their cheapest storage solution, but it, or at least I think it's their cheapest storage solution, but it is one that's supposed to be used to ice your information. You put information there, that's why it's called Glacier, and you basically leave it there. It is not meant for read, write, read, write the way that its primary web services are. And the primary one, it runs web applications. They run entire websites. There are configuration options that let you use um, Amazon's new email service, which is particularly good for send-only email, which is what you want if you're a big company who is sending out 
flyers every month and brochures and newsletters, and you don't expect conversation back and forth. It particularly excels in that. But while you can use Amazon S3, which is their simple storage service, for backup, it's not, in terms of what you pay, really worth what most people want. What most people want is their glacier service, which is to save it for a rainy day or a cold day in, you know, wherever. And so if you're going to the cloud, going Amazon means that you can buy a third-party product like ARC, which is A-R-Q, not A-R-K, but, you know, the idea is that Noah had his ARC and he put all the animals on it. You use this product, it's a Mac product, and you can store to to Amazon. You can also go with Apple with, you know, a lot of people do. And it just works seamlessly and it will back up your stuff. But I don't know if I have the level of trust in their service, nor the happiness where they're costing. How have you found iCloud costs? Yeah, iCloud uh, for storage is unfortunately very expensive and it's also very integrated with Apple's devices so it's not very useful if you are outside of the Apple ecosystem but yeah they are too expensive and I'm hoping that we are going to get some news about that this WWDC maybe higher tiers with lower cost but who knows Uh, you talked about Amazon, mm-hmm. and I use a solution that's similar to Amazon, but I really like the company and I really like their product. So you've probably heard of Backblaze, right? I, in fact, have just been converted to using Backblaze. That yeah. is my thing right now. So, and it was a journey. But I was going to, I, I'm not going to talk about Backblaze. I the, will eventually. The, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about the the their backup solution. I'm going to talk about Backblaze B2. Have you heard of mm-hmm. B2? So I have because you told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can tell, I'm a fan of Backblaze B2 and it's a storage solution similar to what Amazon offers. But the thing is it's very inexpensive. So Backblaze B2 is free for your first first 10 gigabytes. And after that, it's 0.005 cents per gigabyte per month. And if you compare that to Amazon S3, Amazon Mm -hmm. S3 is 0.021 per gigabyte per month. So it's 320% more expensive. Than back so I have to ask, is there traffic costs? Because I know with Amazon, they do charge you quite a bit for all your reads. Yeah, it's not so just your rights. Backblaze charges 0.01 per gigabyte of downloads, and that compared to Amazon, which is charging 0.05, so that's a 400% increase. Uh, if you compare Amazon to Backblaze. So it's still very inexpensive. And you can go to their website and use their calculator. I'm using it for temporary file storage, especially when I need to share it with people because I have an app that's called DropShare and it integrates with Backblaze. So you can just drag some file to the app icon and it's going to upload and give you the link which you can share with your friends. And the cool thing about B2 is that they've implemented an API that's equivalent to the Amazon API. So anything that works with Amazon is probably going to work with Backblaze without the developer having to explicitly support it. And I find that backup applications are that use third-party backbones are becoming more configurable. And there are quite a 
few options in addition to Amazon, Dropbox, and Backblaze, as we've mentioned. There are others out there. And being able to configure your backups to go to one or more of these providers gives you more and more reliability because you have your data in multiple locations. And I think a lot of people think that just sticking a time machine disk onto their Mac is sufficient. And I'm going to argue that it's not. Yeah, I actually need to get better at automatic backups, especially off-site backups. I do have a lot of important stuff on Dropbox, but as we talked about, it's not really a backup. It's a cloud storage. Uh, it's better than just having it on my computer, but it's, it's still not a full-on backup. And I think we should also mention the advantages of having a bootable backup. Mm -hmm. I, and I was going to get there because having Time Machine is simply insufficient. You need to own a copy of either Carbon Copy, Cloner, or some reasonable equivalent and every day be creating a backable backup. You know, preferably <laughs> you're doing this using incremental backups of so course. that you don't have to rewrite your disk every day. But the components of a good backup system are going to be duplication, multiple locations, and schedule. Yes, you can use Dropbox, but you have to have a scheduler. Without that scheduling component, any cloud solution is never going to be sufficient. And the worst thing I can think of is my mom used to have a floppy disk and she would just write to that floppy disk over and over every day. And I was telling her, mom, floppy disk is not going to last. It is going to die. You need to start using other media. And guess what happened? The floppy disk died? The floppy disk died. This was in the 2000s, by the way. Oh, my <laughs> not, God. <laughs> not in the 90s, in the 2000s. And, you know, it was deeply upsetting to her. And you really have to weigh what are the emotional and financial costs when your floppy disk dies. So having multiple backup approaches on multiple media. Don't do your time machine and your carbon copy cloner to the same device. Every Thanksgiving, when, when Black Friday rolls around, you should be thinking about picking up a whole bunch of well-rated disk drives. Go through the Amazon reviews and read the one-star and two-star reviews because those are the, going to be the most valuable to you. You need to know how the product acts at its worst possible moment. And if the fail factor is fairly low, you know, go ahead and buy. Buy from more than one manufacturer if you can, especially if you can afford to run multiple backups at the same time. You will want to have at your home computer, at a minimum, a time machine backup and at least one carbon copy cloner backup that produces a bootable system that both these things that the, the, the time machine is running daily and that your carbon copy cloner is scheduled for some time in the day, usually in the middle of the night, to do its incremental backup. And I was able to, because I am such a backup fetishist, I went, I partitioned my Fusion Drive a few weeks ago, and of course it died when I did that because Fusion Drives do not like you to partition, and if they do, they want you to erase the whole drive and then partition. But I was able to restore from my carbon copy cloner, you know, in a few hours. It was very simple. Plus, in doing that, I was able to defragment my disk, <laughs> which you know wasn't my intention, but it did turn out that way. And I want to point out that at first what I did is I erased and cleaned up my disk and then I tried restoring from my time machine. And guess what happened? It failed. 
it failed. This was really the first time I had major amounts of data on a time machine and tried their restore from time machine. And I never really had the opportunity to give it a, a go. And if time machine had been my only backup, I would have been mostly screwed. And there is yes. also the issue <laughs> that backup restores from time machine take ages. Yes, they do. And to fail, it took ages. I mean, it just took forever to fail. So I thought it was going great. I was going, oh, yeah, this works. I, you know, I'm so glad Apple included this. I'm so happy. You know, here it is. And it did fail. And it left my system in a unrecoverable mess. So I did have to go ooh, reboot back into the recovery partition, which you do with, I believe it's command R when you reboot. It yeah. takes you to the recovery partition. And there you're going to find disk utility. You're going to find the terminal. You're going to um, find a way to reinstall the operating system. So the recovery partition lets you reconfigure your drive, partition it as needed, and install Mac OS to the point where you can then recover your time machine stuff. And the time machine option, I thought, okay, Let's give it a go. And it didn't. It didn't go. Don't depend on it. <laughs> a big thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring this episode of iFreaks to promote the App Center, a continuous integration delivery and feedback suite of cloud services for Swift and Objective-C apps. With App Center, you can automate your iOS and macOS development lifecycle, build, test, distribute, monitor, and push to ship five-star, high-quality apps faster and with confidence. Building a development pipeline in your iOS apps has always been a challenge, but with App Center, you can get started in minutes. Simply connect your GitHub and Bitbucket repos and build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. As a fully modular suite of services, you can pick and choose the service you need and connect it to the tools you already use. Sign up now on appcenter.ms and spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. Yeah, and if you have a bootable backup, you can just boot to it and get on with your day. If, if you have an mm -hmm. emergency, if you have something you need to get finished. Um, do you think it's worth having your bootable backup be a, an external SSD so it's faster? <sighs> I think it would be lovely to have it as an external SSD. But money. I don't think it's practical. It's just that I'm at four terabytes for my wow. external drives. Because I've got family videos. I've got lots of, you know, lots of life in there. there there's just so much. It builds up over time. Um. I have an ITV system, so I record TV shows, and I don't keep everything, but there are certain series that you know I do keep because I like having them around. I consider part of my media collection, and I have that on an actual a separate drive and a separate backup system, which is one of the reasons I have such large drives, but it's not practical to do that with SSD. Yeah, um, I have a 500 gig SSD on my MacBook Pro, which is my only computer. So mm -hmm. I could probably have an external SSD for bootable backups, mm -hmm. uh, but they are expensive, unfortunately. Not only they are expensive, when you're doing your backups, you're usually sleeping. Why does it have to be fast? Yeah, but I mean, uh, if you ever need to actually boot from that disk directly mm -hmm. for some reason, like you have to finish something real quick yep. uh, and you're in a hurry, uh, it can be useful. What I do is I have a couple of small portable drives that have boot systems. And one of them has every boot system from back to um, Snow Leopard through Lion and Mountain Lion and so forth. So what it is, is, and, you know, I'm going to add a partition this summer. Every single system I can boot in really fast because when I'm testing software, I want to be able to boot. And I, so I know I can always boot to that. I also have one that I keep in a draw, which is, you know, a few months old. 
at any time. I think I do it three or four times a year. I just do a full backup to that little portable drive and I know that I can get going. Plus, if I have access to the time machine or to my full backup, I don't necessarily need to do the restore that day because all my work is up to date and available on those those local drives. And do you have a development environment on those drives? Yeah, I do. <laughs> and uh, the development environment um, basically is also, I have a separate MacBook um, where I keep that always up to date with development. So every new beta, every um, new version is always available on that particular um, MacBook. It is not my primary development machine, but I always keep it in sync because I figure if one or the other dies, I need a development system without lag. I cannot wait to install Xcode. I cannot wait to install all the software and the, the you know, my mounds of library code and so forth. Those are too precious. Those have to not just be backed up. They have to be available on multiple machines at both times. Yeah, th that's very important. And are you testing any software that needs to run on Snow Leopard? <laughs> I am not, but I do um, administer my kids' stuff. And because I wrote software for that, There is actually um, code and so forth for Snow Leopard utilities that my kids use regularly. Cool. It's not that cool. It's just annoying at this point. <laughs> But the rest of the the rest of them, you know, from Mac Lion forward, are for deployment. I do test and I do try to write software that goes pretty far back because even though you want to think that everybody is up to date and Apple shows those lovely charts. The reality is often, especially in smaller businesses, they're not. Now, that's the local side of things. Remember, oh. I've got all these drives. They're all doing their backups. By the way, Bombitch is the ones who make Carbon Copy Cloner. About every year or two, they come out with a new version, and I just buy it automatically. They are so worth supporting It's a little irritating, um, you know, to, to pull out the wallet and get the latest upgrade. But I always do it because I really want them to stay in business. Yeah, I really think we should be supporting good Mac developers. Mm -hmm. And Carbon Copy Cloner is a gem. It is such an absolute gem. There are other ones out there. I think SuperDuper is another one, which I don't use. Um, and I've heard good things about it. I just happen to be on Carbon Copy Cloner because that's the one I came across first and they've been fantastic. And their latest stuff doesn't just go to external drives. They're now reaching out to, you know, cloud solutions as well. I haven't played with it. I only read the release notes. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure what they do or what the abilities are, but they are forward looking. They are really well-designed piece of software. But everything I've talked about so far in terms of my personal setup situation with, you know, the MacBook as well as my Mac Mini, with Time Machine, with Carbon Copy Cloner, and with the disks in the draw, those are all local. If my house is taken by volcano, they're gone. So you have to look at the other side, which is a scheduled, paid, regular backup service that can deliver you a backup drive in a short amount of time if you end up in a situation where everything local goes goes away, whether it's a fire, a flood, a famine. I guess famine won't affect your, <laughs> <laughs> your backup system. But The drives will starve to death. Yeah, you have to think off-site. Now, do you have an off-site backup solution? I do not. And um, I actually used to have an excuse for not having it, but I don't anymore because, as you know, here our internet is not the best. And I think for some places in the US, this is true as well. Mm -hmm. But I used to have a very slow internet connection and especially uploads are usually 
capped. So mm-hmm. as I have discovered the last couple of months, <laughs> because even in the US, when you work with Comcast, they cap your uploads. And if you transfer your backup solution to a new provider, you are sending up a very large amount of data. And then Comcast starts doing little threatening things in your your browser. They just have these notices that pop up going, do you realize how much data is in a terabyte? Are you a botnet? Do you understand? <laughs> are you a botnet? Are you, do you understand that you are using more data than 99.999% of a human being would ever use? They're trying they to get, shame you. <laughs> they are. The shame tactics are huge. And so I called up them and it's like they treat you like you're some sort of criminal. But the fact is I was originally on crash plan, which was not a great backup system, but it was fairly reliable and it would make my Mac wind tunnel because it would use Java for backup. I hated that, but I didn't have anything to really to turn to. And I had inertia. I didn't want to change providers because I had invested so much time getting that initial backup done, which took months with crash plan. And so it used to be fun just to complain about crash plan. And that was until crash plan decided to close its consumer division and decided to be only available for business which was, you know, much more profitable and much less in terms of consumer support, which apparently was costing them quite a bit. So they sold their consumer part to Carbonite, which is a very well-known large backup company. Um, They advertise a lot on the radio. And Carbonite, you know, is just really pervasive. So I automatically was transferred to Carbonite, and I think around early March, I started my migration, and I started annoying Comcast and began my initial backup, and it was horrible. And so I was constantly on the phone with Carbonite technical support, and they said at some point, well, maybe it's your host's file. And I have to explain that I use a very customized host file. I use the someonewhocares.org hosts file. And if you don't use it, I really recommend that you check that out. What it does is it basically blacklists just about every malicious site that you can think of. And they update it weekly. And you put it in your hosts file, which is in your et cetera file, uh, in your et cetera directory on your Macintosh in, you know, the Unix structure. And it just maps them all to, you know, 127.0.0. I think it's either 0.0 or 0.1. It's one of those things. 0.0.1. Yeah. 0.1. It basically says, go away. I don't want to deal with you. You are a bad website. I I don't want to connect to you. (laughs) And It basically, I use it instead of an ad blocker um, because I found that I didn't really need an ad blocker once I had this. And I have a little script. It's automated, of course, and it just regularly, once a week, updates my host's file. And you do need to be an administrator on the system to do this. But, you know, that's no big deal. If, you know, you're going to be messing with et cetera hosts, you're probably an administrator anyway. And they said, well, that's blocking stuff. And I'm saying, but it's blocking malware. What are you reaching out to that is on this <laughs> list? And they refused to tell me. So they said to do my backups every day, I had to disable my host's file and, you know, connect then. So I started doing that to see how it would go. And it turns out that even with my host's file reconfigured to the default hosts, it still wouldn't back up properly. So I knew it wasn't the host that was doing it, but they, they could not diagnose and figure out why my backups were just not working. And, you know, I'm sending, you know, lots and lots of gigabytes up the chain, getting Comcast more and more and more annoyed. And I stuck with them for about a month. And I went to Twitter and I said, you know, help me out. This really sucks. What's better? And what did they point to? Everybody pointed to Backblaze. 
So that began the story of my using backblaze, which, of course, began yet another initial cycle. And by this point, Comcast really was freaking out. They were and sending Com helicopters with agents <laughs> to your house already. There were black helicopters circling around my house at this point because of all the upload bandwidth. But um, it didn't last that long because I found the user configuration options, which allow you to exclude folders and include folders. Every backup system has these, but from Backblaze, they worked properly on a Macintosh. And when you tried to change a folder, it wouldn't hang the program for 10 or 15 minutes. It is so nice to be on a system that understands Mac, that is adapted for Mac. It lives in my um, menu bar and it's responsive. You know, it's not the greatest design in the world, but it's easy to use. And they, of course, have it where you just install it for the just back it. Just back it up system. That's their default, which I think is a lovely default. It is not appropriate for someone who has, you know, four gigabyte or four terabyte external drives, but it's a wonderful thing. You just turn it on and it works, which is very Apple in that design. And then, of course, you can easily go in and you can switch off folders and backup drives and, you know, external drives, time machine drives, and it's configurable just like all of them are. But in the case of the software construction, because this was actually written by someone who knew what a Macintosh was, um, the Backblaze one, you, you click it on, click it off, and, you know, it's just set. It doesn't have to go through any weird JavaScript stuff. It doesn't have to go through um, trying to reconfigure, oh, my God, the log files that supported Carbonite. They would create a gigabyte of configuration information and they would store that in your library you know your slash library not your personal individual library oh. and it was using ridiculous amounts of space on my system it was hard to use slow to use i am so glad i have switched to backblaze but i will tell you i have never once needed data delivered to me and i think that is the crux of any system so i'm only going on reputation there and I'm pretty sure Carbonite can do that. I'm pretty sure Backblaze can do that. I knew CrashPlan was well known for doing that. Um, in the case of Hurricane Sandy in New York City a few years ago, they waived their $100 fee. You only paid for the drive. You didn't pay for the special delivery after the disaster. So CrashPlan has a lot of goodwill, even though they don't want me as a customer anymore. They only want big business as a customer. They do have a lot of goodwill because they did see an emergency and they did get those drives, those backup drives out to customers and you just paid the cost of the drive. Yeah, I think you convinced me. I think I'm going to try backing up my system to Backblaze. Let me figure out how to generate a referral link because in theory that gives me an extra month or something on the, the service. Um, I don't think that's going to work because I've already been a customer of theirs. So ah. I think that it's probably just for new customers. I tried them before, but I had to uh, cancel because of the web uh, internet connection situation we talked about. So. That makes sense. But now I have okay. 100 gigabytes fiber up and down, so I, I think I'm <gasps> upset. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> and you say you have bad tech in Brazil? I don't have that. Well, some places. You, you can get a, a gigabyte up and down with Google Fiber in the US in some places. Mm -hmm. So I've talked about local. I've talked about um, going for a company for doing a remote backup solution. And the, that backup solution, I know with Carbonite, I'm pretty sure that they stored on Amazon S3. And because they're so huge, you know, I'm sure their rates were way less for use than ours are. Uh, they also, most of these major providers, most of the major backup providers do provide web interfaces so you can recover single files. It is kind of like Time Machine, but remote. And most of them, as part of their standard service, will allow you to download a certain amount from their web server. Um, so you do have instant access as well as their ability to 
restore to your system, or to ship a disk. But there's more to the backup story, which I'm sure you're shocked by this. Wow. <laughs> so do tell me about it. All right. Now, there are NAS solutions. Um, the, the, the network where you create basically an internet node and you put it in your house and it hooks directly up to the internet. And a lot of people use that for files that they can grab directly to their iPad while they're on the go or to their iPhone, but it's usually an iPad. And there are any number of uh, companies. I had used one that was a branded company and they went out of business more or less. They basically said, we're going to stay into business forever. And of course they didn't. So I had used Pogo plug, rest in peace, Pogo plug. Their equipment died after a few years, which really ticked me off. And their service died a few years later. It, it just, you know, very well intentioned, but the idea was right, which is you use an Arduino or Raspberry Pi to create a network server and you hook it to a hard drive and you basically have that serving your file system and you use whatever security and encryption you want, but you, you get access to that with a fixed IP address. And then what you do is you find friends who also do this. And what you do is you can actually store backups probably, you know, in the few gigabytes, say under 100 gigabytes per person. Um, but you use co-location. You give them space on your network server and you get space from them on their network server. And so it gives you an offsite solution. So if your house is hit by the meteorite, their house is not going to be. So your it data is, is physically uh, at your friend's house? Your but data is physically at your friend's house. You can access it and your you friend can can't? You can access it and it's encrypted. Ah, uh, cool. And nice. it's encrypted. And there, these are now, even though it was originally a few commercial products, these are now mostly roll-your-own solutions. But it gives you a lot of the same features that you would normally get from going with a commercial service. But it gives it to you basically for free. Well, if you think about it, you can get a Raspberry Pi for very cheap. I think they're like mm -hmm. 30 bucks or something. And you can get that, a power supply, external hard drive, USB mm -hmm. hub. Let's say you will spend, I don't know, 150 bucks. And you can go to your friend and say, hey, can I just put this over here? <laughs> and it with your network, if you have, you know, a four terabyte drive running off of it, these days you can get an eight terabyte for, you know, what, $150? And you give each person, you know, one terabyte, even though most people use far less because they don't want that much, you know, traffic going in and out of their system. But think about it. If you have a big network of friends and you can get this set up, it is a very good way to distribute data and you can have redundancy. It doesn't have to just be on one drive. You can have multiple drives, especially, you know, if you have geeky people who are willing to collaborate as a cooperative and who have, you know, the fixed IP address problem thing solved. And if I remember, there was a very cheap service that would give you a fixed IP address. It was an indirect service, and I can't even remember the name of it now. Because there's a cool new thing by Cloudflare, uh, which mm -hmm. I think it, it's called Argo or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much it, it costs. Um, it might be free even. Uh, I don't know, but uh, it's not really a fixed IP address thing. But what it does is it it creates a tunnel between a computer and the internet, basically. So you can access some service that's hosted on your local network from another network and you are not hitting your machine directly. You're tunneling it through this Cloudflare thing. So your home network or your friend's home network is not exposed to the internet. That, that's very right. interesting. 
that is actually really cool and wonderful. And I honestly don't know of any turnkey solution that does this anymore. As I said, this used to, there were a variety of um, startups that were doing this share your disk and, you know, they would provide cubes and you would just plug in your disk and, you know, it would automate it and it would automate the invitations to your friends and so forth. I don't know of anything turnkey within the last three to five years, but it would be nice if there's something out there that does it so it doesn't have to be completely homebrew. Maybe it's too geeky for it to mm -hmm. be a product. <laughs> yeah. But let me talk about a couple of other edge cases. And the first one is iPads. A lot of people now live on iPads without having a home computer. And right now, the only solution most of them can use is iCloud. Yeah, because given the restrictions iOS has, it's not really possible for a third party to offer a full-on like bootable backup solution for iOS devices. That's mm -hmm. a thing only Apple can do. And they do it in a way... Uh, so iOS is already a partition system. So there's the system partition and there's the user partition. So the, the user partition is backed up to iCloud, but you can't really integrate some third-party thing with that. You have to use iCloud. And you have to pay the like huge amounts of money they charge for storage. Right. And what they're trying to do is hook the students. So they give students, so long as you have an EDU address, you get about 10 times the storage for almost free. So it's a new initiative where anybody using an iPad who has an EDU address, who's a student, can get some insane amount of storage, more than you really need for your iPad. And then, of course, you graduate, and then you have to start paying, and you're sort of hooked into the system. You see, this is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, the you get um, more storage for a limited period of time thing. Uh, this is a scam, basically, because I think Google did it at one time. Oh, if you sign up now, you get 200 gigabytes for free for a year. That's when they start earning money. So the standard is five gigabytes, but there's 200 gigabytes you get if you are a teacher or if you're a student. And there's really no other way, even if you're using um, Dropbox on your system, you can use it for individual files on your iPad and it integrates with the new files system. Have you been using files a lot? Not much at all, actually. Mm -hmm. And I do use it, but not as much as I think Apple expected people to use. And we're the power users and we're not using it. Well, I, I actually wouldn't consider myself an, an iOS power user. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I think we push the limits a bit. Yeah, I think that there's people out there who use it in more ways than we do. I mm -hmm. don't use it professionally or anything. And I don't do design on it. I, I don't use it for taking notes. I, I use it for programming. But the fact is, if you want to back up your iPad and you're doing significant work on it, the best way to do it is to hook up to a computer. And if you don't have a separate computer with iTunes that you're doing your backups and you're doing them pretty regularly, even over the air, you don't have to do it physically anymore. You really are absolutely dependent on iCloud as your primary backup solution. I wonder if, if it would be possible to write something for a Raspberry Pi or some similar platform that simulates the Wi-Fi syncing that iTunes does so you could mm -hmm. back up your iOS devices. Not only is it possible, but there are several projects on GitHub awesome. that simulate the administrative interface into the, the device. And there are little command line applications out there that do application load, application offload, data onload, data off, 
And that's what you really want. You want to be able to access that data and you want to be able to do it in a way that acts in a trusted way. I mean, you want want it to be trusted. You want to have that trusted interaction, but you don't necessarily want that to only be through Apple. You would, it would be great if you could use a Raspberry Pi solution or an Arduino solution that would go to your Backblaze um, B2 or any other, you know, roll your own cloud. And right now, as far as I'm aware, Apple does not offer this. And I think that it's an unfair capture of a particular market. I do think that it would be nice if Apple started offering a way that you can use a third-party vendor or use multiple vendors for your backups. If you have nothing else, use a USB stick. It may be equivalent to my mom's floppy drive, but use a USB stick if you're doing nothing else. And swap them out pretty regularly. Yeah, I think that's that's a good idea, at least. So should we go to Pix? Yeah, let's go to Pix. So, well, th this episode was full of Pix already from backup solutions and stuff, but what do you have for us today? Want to automatically build, test, and release your iOS and macOS apps? Try AppCenter. Connect your repo within minutes, build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. Spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. Visit appcenter.ms and get started for free. So, Erica, what do you have for us this week? My pick this week is a command line utility called Noti, N-O-T-I. It's an open source Uh, <laughs> project. Uh, it's available on GitHub. And what you do is at the command line, you say Nodi right before you do any command line thing. And when that process finishes, you can fire off a notification and it can be a system notification. Like you get a notification center. It could be a spoken notification. Um, they have a whole bunch of different ways And you can mix and match them. You don't have to pick one or the other. And I love it because I can step away from the computer and it will tell me when my command line thing has finished. And if you're compiling, especially compiling Swift at the command line, it's a really great way to know that an incremental build such as a ninja build has finished. Wow, that's a really cool thing. Uh, actually, I was thinking about something like that this uh, last week. I was running some lengthy commands in Terminal And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I could get a notification when it finishes? So I think I'm going to be using this. Do you have a pick? Yes, I do. Um, we mentioned Cloudflare briefly. And I've been playing around with a new thing they have, which are Cloudflare workers. So Cloudflare Ooh. is a CDN platform. And you basically configure it as your DNS for your website and the traffic goes through Cloudflare and they can cache your assets and they have a bunch of functionality. And the new thing they have is Cloudflare worker uh, platform thing that you can basically run JavaScript on the Edge server. So you write a little JavaScript thing that's going to be run for a specific route on your server when person visits erica.com slash something you can <laughs> create rules to route to, to your worker and that code that you wrote is going to run on the edge server so it's not a server thing it's a serverless thing so it's going to every time nice. a person visits that route you can run your code and decide what you want to do. You can add headers to the original response. You can create a new response. You can use it to proxy to another server and, and modify the response, which is what I'm doing. So yeah, it's really fun and it's a different type of backend computing, which I really like. And it's very performant as well because Cloudflare has servers all around the world and 
So if someone is accessing your thing from, I don't know, Japan, it's going to reach the Cloudflare server farm in Japan. So you get very low latency. Low latency, multiple redundancy is so important for any sort of distributed service. And it's nice to know that there are solutions out there like that. That is so cool. That's awesome. So that's all we have for this week. And we'll talk to you soon. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.